spite of me singing faster than the song leader. <laughs> you guys caught that, right? I know, poor Pastor Ethan. I gotta say though, he didn't glare at me. He just like he just like, okay, I'm gonna sing louder and slower. I'm like, why is that? What's up with Pastor Ethan? Oh, it's me. Oh. <laughs> Hey, that's it. We're worshiping. You know, praise the Lord. God doesn't determine the worship by who's singing faster or slower. Good thing. Good thing. I was just like worshiping, okay? I was just in a state of worship, kind of out of body experience. And, and the Holy Spirit's like, Russ, pay attention. I'm like, what's going on here? What's happening? Okay. <laughs> you know, it is a good thing I can laugh at myself. I seem to be doing that a lot lately. I don't know. I don't know. God's keeping me humble. That's good. Okay, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you were wondering who you should have followed, you should have followed Pastor Ethan. So for those of you following me, you did wrong, okay? I didn't have the mic. Some of you started singing faster with me. You didn't, should have done that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 this morning, continuing our series on blameless. So verses 1 through 3. We then, as workers together with him... Him who? Well, him Christ. Hey, isn't that great? We are co-workers with Christ. You are not co-workers with Russ. I am one of the co-workers. I'm not the boss. He's the boss. We're the workers. That includes me. We're the workers. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also, co-workers, that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee, encouraged thee, and comforted thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Last week, we focused on verse 3 before going on to verses 4 and 5. Today, I'd like to go backwards and focus on verse 2. Christ says, I've heard thee in the time accepted. Meaning, God has a plan. And God's plan is not going to be changed by you. God's plan is not going to be changed by what I want, what I've done. God has a plan. Yeah, there are things in the plan that, that God allows to happen. You know, God's a sovereign God, but in his sovereignty, God does not micromanage every detail. In his sovereignty, God says, here are the main events that are going to take place. I've prophesied of these main events. I foretold them. There's nothing you can do to change those main events. Those are going to happen. But God says, from main event to main events, I'll be involved in some of the other events. But God also allows men, men and women, to make decisions that affect kind of what happens from here to there. Our choices affect that. But God says there's an accepted time that when my plan comes to fruition, it's going to happen, whether you like it or not. And God also says that in that accepted time, what is he, what is he dealing with here? He says, in the day of salvation, I've succored, I've comforted, I've encouraged you. God says, you know, my salvation, who I am to you, what I offer you, isn't just so you can go to heaven. God says, I want to comfort you along the way. I want to encourage you. I want to, that word sucker kind of has the idea of a mother embracing her child. Actually, could even include the idea of like feeding the child and through an embrace and, and a young infant. God wants to embrace you. God wants to sustain you. 
God wants to lift you up. The Bible tells us that, that God will lift those up who humble themselves. God doesn't want you to stay on the ground. God wants to bring you up, not to a position of pride, but bring you up to a position of success. You don't find success on the ground. You find success on your feet. And God wants to bring you back to your feet. And he says, today is the day. Now is the accepted time. Now, as I said, God has main events that he has planned out and that are going to happen. Your salvation, I believe he knows when you got saved. And if you're not saved, God knows when you will be saved. But that decision, God allows you to be part of. He's called on you. He's, he's done his part. And now he's drawing you to him. And now you make a decision of whether you will accept that embrace or run from that embrace. And if you are a, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, then you have the decision to remain in that embrace or as the prodigal son who was a son and ran away as a prodigal child who is a child of God, you can also choose to run away. And that parable tells us the father didn't chase the son down, but the father did look for the son to return. And when the son returned, the father did not embrace him with a slap. The father embraced him with a hug. When the son returned, he returned to an embrace. The embrace that he had left to begin with. If you're saved, God offers an embrace. He wants to encourage you. Today is the accepted day for encouragement. Today is the accepted day for your salvation if you're not saved. And if you are saved, to start thriving in your salvation. Today is that day to experience the embrace of your God. At the end of verse 2, Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then we read last week, verses 4 and 5, how we, can, we are called to be blameless. Verse 3 says, blameless that the ministry be not blamed. So the, the actions we have are displayed by, for the world to see through both the good and the bad. You know, it's so easy for a Christian to put that smile and say, the world should come see how we act on Sunday because, you know, if they, if they just saw the smiles and if the, if, if the unsaved came into church and they saw our lifted hands and they just saw the state of worship, they would be convinced that we're the real deal and they would just get saved. Like, how could they not? Because they could see on our faces how happy and joyful and worshipful we are. But here's the thing. The world says, we saw how you were on Monday through Saturday. We have no interest to see how you are on Sunday. Oh, but it's so much different on Sunday. That's the problem. <laughs> you know, I preached last week, Sunday, on being blameless through trials. This was the hardest week I have had in a year. I said to Pastor John, who was down in Florida during this week, I said, I don't know what I was thinking preaching this. Like, this was a hard week. It's like God like, gave me the, Russ, you want to preach that? We're going to see what you can really do then. Like, he threw at me some of the hardest things this week, emotionally, spiritually, personally, professionally, like, religiously, like you put the E-L-E after L-Y after it, like it happened to me, okay? It was a hard, hard week. 
And I kept telling myself, be blameless, Russ. Be blameless, Russ. Like, don't snap at people. Don't let your attitude uh, uh, be affected by your emotional the turmoil that's boiling up inside. And so, glad to say, I didn't fire anyone, and I'm still here too. They didn't fire me, so everything worked out okay. I didn't fire them. They didn't fire me. We all made it through the week, and we made it blameless. As far as I know, we're blameless still. But, boy, it is, it's hard. I know, and I experienced it. it was, it's hard to go through difficult times and still act the Christian. <laughs> and I, can, can, dare I say, to not act, to be the Christian, right? Not act like one, but to be the Christian. It's hard. And that was last week, that even when it's hard, trials, general trials, because we live in a cursed world, uh, persecution, because we've chosen a side, because we've chosen God, we've also chosen an enemy. It's hard to have an enemy. And then my third main point, it's hard to live a life of sacrifice that we as Christians, on top of the other trials, we even put more on it and say, God, I want to follow you, and I accept the sacrifices to further your kingdom. It's hard. And then it's really hard to do it with a good attitude, (laughs) to do it with a strong testimony. But what's the motivation? The motivation is we love God, and we want other people to love God too. And they're not going to love your God if they hate you. (laughs) Now, they may, if they know God outside of you, then they're just going to go around you, right? If they're, like, saved and you have nothing to do with that, well, then they'll just love God and you're not a factor. If they don't know God and they do know you and you introduce them to God and they hate you, they probably don't want to know your God. And so that gets into our second group of blamelessness today. I see, beginning in verse 6, by pureness... By knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, unending, doesn't stop, keeps going. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. (laughs) Full armor. Completely worn. Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. This is not a message on the armor of God, but what a great text that is. The armor of God is not an armor of attack. It's an armor of defense. Because you've chosen a side, because you've chosen Christ as your king, you've also chosen an enemy. And God says, because you've chosen an enemy, I'm going to equip you with a defense against that enemy. The armor of God. Not the armor of man's traditions. That's like wearing paper. It doesn't work. Not the armor of personal philosophy. Not the armor of good feelings, good vibes. No, the armor of God. The armor of righteousness, we're told here. And so I see these three points. And although God's word does not uh, segregate these nine things into groups of three, and, and I didn't say that he did last week either. I saw it as a grouping God's word himself does not group it, and he does not group these, but I do still see some groupings. And so I'm going to uh, separate these into three groups, and I see being blameless, first of all, with all your mind, being blameless with all your heart, and being blameless with all your soul. Does that spark any memory of other biblical texts? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? (laughs) Well, 
God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he says here, keep my commandments and do what's right so you're blameless so my kingdom can thrive and so that people will not blame the ministry because of how you act. We need to be blameless here. We need to be blameless here. And we need to be blameless here in our soul, our heart, our mind, and our soul. So I see the first one, the first grouping is found in verse 6, being blameless with all our mind. Verse 6, by pureness, by knowledge, and by long-suffering. Now, that word long-suffering, obviously very closely attached to patience, endurance, also kind of attached to the previous nine that we saw. But long-suffering has the idea of this, that you are committed. We're going to talk about that. Commitment. (laughs) I've counseled multiple marriage couples. Marriage, uh, young couples who are engaged don't like and don't want to talk about the suffering that comes along with marriage. They think it's going to be all fantastic. They think, you know, Hollywood. Uh, They think happily ever after. They think that my spouse will never do no wrong. Uh, I am marrying God's gift to mankind or womankind, whatever, right? And so it's going to be perfect. All right. When you get married, you must commit to suffering as well. I'm not saying marriage is suffering, all right? I don't believe, I mean, some can be. My, I'm not, honey, ours is not, okay? I mean, this is, <laughs> my wife's like, where's he going with this? Hmm. Okay, I am saying that there is no perfect marriage because you're not marrying a perfect person. And so, therefore, there's going to be some level of suffering, personal suffering, because You are imperfect, marrying an imperfect person. And marriage is a commitment in the long game, through the long suffering. Now, I will say this. The closer you are to God, the less suffering there is. And the closer you are to each other, the less suffering there is. The further you drift, the more suffering. The further you walk away from God, the more suffering, okay? So you're kind of causing your own suffering if you don't connect closely to God and closely to each other. But even walking close to God and each other, you're still human. There are still some things that will annoy you because the person is human that you're married to. Well, in Christianity, we're playing the long game. And we need to make a commitment to stick it through. A covenant between us and our God, you might say. So I say three points in being blameless with all our mind. Verse 6, by pureness. Letter A, God desires authenticity from his followers. Pureness means without blemish. It means, uh, you know, if you had water, you're not going to drink water with floaties in it, right? You don't drink water. I generally don't drink water after my children. Uh, especially when they're chewing, like chomping on a sandwich. Dad, can I have some water? Sure, just keep that glass when you're done, okay? I don't want it back. One time, I wasn't paying attention. It was really bad. It was my four-year-old daughter. I got it back. I drank it, and I was like, wait a second. I, you know, it was like there was more floaties than water in there. I, I don't know what she was doing. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's not pure water. Yeah, you guys, I know it's hard to hear that, isn't it? Visualizing that. That's not pure water, folks. And you know, that's exactly what a lot of Christians are to the world. Oh, come on, you know, drink of the living water that I can provide you. They're like, eh, no thanks, I'm not interested. A lot of floaties going on in there. I don't think I want to drink out of that cup. God wants Christians to be authentic. But here's the problem. Here is the problem. I've met Christians, a lot of them, 
And many of them say, I am authentic. I'm just authentically rebellious. Like, I, you know, at least I live it out. Like, I don't hide it. I am authentic. They'll say, like, I know I'm saved. I'm going to heaven, but it kind of ends there. I'm the real deal. Like, what you see is what you got. Well, I don't like it. Well, at least I'm authentic. That's not what we're looking for, you know. You can't say to the unbeliever, hey, I'm authentically a rebel. Now follow me. No, God, when, when, when he talks about pureness, has the idea of authentic and pure, not authentic and impure, not authentically immoral, not uh, uh, authenticity when it comes to living a wicked lifestyle where at least everyone knows, man. I mean, at least I'm not hiding anything. Yeah, but no one wants what you got. You're doing more damage. Well, at least I'm the real deal. It's better if you were the real deal in a good way, not a real deal in the bad way. And a lot of Christians, they justify their wickedness because they claim I'm authentic. No, authenticity is a great thing, but only when it's good. Authentic when it's bad, you don't want. And pureness is the authentic good. Pureness is the, 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 the imperfections in our lives. Do not overwhelm the Holy Spirit through our lives. I'm not perfect. If you know me, you already knew that. You're not perfect. We know that. Let's stop trying to hide our imperfections, but let's recognize this. The Holy Spirit is the purifier of our imperfections. Look, you can get water from a creek, and you can say, oh, this is going to be good, but there's something in there that's going to give you some stomach aches and hurt you. You run it through a purifier, and then it really is good. The water is still the same water. The, the, the impurities were taken out of it. And so we as believers need to run our lives, our emotions, our decisions, our actions through the purifier. And it's not me. And it's not you. And it's not the self-help books that you read. And it's not the TV shows that you watch. Run your life through the purifier, Jesus Christ. Prayer connection with him, a close, sincere relationship following Christ. And when you run your life through the purifier, it's not that you're pure, perfect water, but the impurities have been dealt with by God. The problem is you'll be impure again later, and that's why you need a constant purifying filter. You know, we have a drinking fountain upstairs. There is a filter attached to the drinking fountain, and we don't just filter the water every hour or every five minutes. Every time the water comes through, it's filtered through every single time you drink out of it. And that's Christ. He wants to filter us every single moment of the day. Letter B. Passion without knowledge often leads to action without purpose. Remember, we're talking about being blameless with all of our mind. So when it comes to following God, we are choosing to eliminate the impurities, allowing Christ to purify us so that we can better represent God to the world. Not being authentically impure or authentically wicked, we are choosing with our minds, saying, God, I choose you over my impurities. And then number uh, verse 6, by knowledge. You know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things. And if you stopped and asked them and said, what are you doing? They would say, oh, I'm doing this. Why are you doing it? I don't know. Someone told me to. A lot of Christians uh, accomplishing a lot of things. Why are you accomplishing it? For God. Okay, that's a general term. I get it. What specifically are you doing for God? And specifically, why are you doing it for God? I don't know. Exactly. That's a problem. There's a lot of people that are just winging it, <laughs> winging it in their marriage. 
Are you trying to fix your marriage? Yeah, what are you doing? I don't know. Okay. Trying to fix your marriage, but you don't know how you're fixing your marriage? I'm just doing stuff. That might be the problem. You might be doing the wrong stuff, and it's counterproductive. Why isn't God doing a work in our family? Because we're doing things. Are you doing the right things, though? Well, I don't know. Well, that's the problem. Why, why isn't God moving in the community and bringing revival to the community? Well, what are we doing? I don't know. But we're doing something. Look, knowledge directs the purpose. So you're actually doing the right thing for the right reason, getting something done. When you are blameless with all your mind, you are considering truth before action. Those who act without thinking are foolhardy and really cause a lot of damage. Those who act without thinking in companies, if they're allowed too much freedom, can cause the company to go bankrupt. Those who act without thinking in families can lose their family. Those who act without thinking in church can cause church splits. The book of Proverbs tells us that don't, it warns us to not be hasty, but to consider to think before we speak. How much more important to think before we act. By knowledge, be blameless by knowledge. Know what you know, and make sure what you know comes from the Bible. I have spoken to so many people who are so confident on what they know, and when I ask them to tell me how they know, they say, well, the Bible says so. Where in the Bible? And then they say, I don't know. Look, if you don't know where in the Bible, then you don't know. And then they might take me to some ambiguous verse that has nothing to do with what they believe they know. And I say, right, explain that verse to me. Well, it says this. No, explain the text around it. I don't know. Then you don't know. And yet you tell everyone that you do know. And there's some foolish out th- people out there that believe you. And now they're, they're knowing the wrong thing because you didn't know either. Know what you know and make sure it comes from the Bible and make sure you are accurate in your interpretation of that text. Be blameless in what you know. And then letter C, commitment is an act of the mind, not the heart. And that's what we see in verse 6, long-suffering. Be blameless in long-suffering. Be blameless in your commitment to finish the race, to come to the end and say, I'm still standing. I didn't run from God. I didn't get on the ground and wallow in my self-pity. It was hard. I accepted the hardships. I knew it wouldn't be easy because Christ warned me of that. Take up your cross and follow me. The foxes have holes, dens, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Follow me and the world will hate you. Follow me and you will suffer. But follow me. Commitment. A lot of people, they commit something with their heart only. A lot of marriages started off with commitment of the heart, only for the heart to drop after a few months of realizing this isn't what I thought. And when the heart dropped, they walked away because it was never a commitment of the mind. It was not an an understanding based off of knowledge. It was not an understanding based off of authenticity of yourself or the person. You both faked it. Both of you in your heart said, oh, we can do this. But it was never a decision of the mind And so when the heart fell and the authenticity was gone, you walked away. Dating relationships, marriages, 
churches, Christians, unbelievers. It's a, it's a rampant problem. People claiming, you can count on me. Can I really? Because I've seen you run away from way too many things to believe that I can count on you. The problem is not you're a horrible person. The problem is you don't understand commitment. Your commitment is attached to this. And when you feel good, you do it. And when you don't, you won't. Oh, I'll clean the room. Why don't you do it right now? I don't feel like it. Oh, yeah, I'll go, I'll go uh, mow the lawn, honey. Do it right now. Well, I don't feel like it. I mean, our commitment to doing what we've claimed we'll do is attached to what we want to do. That's our feelings. That's wrong. Long-suffering is a state of the mind. It is a state of the will. You make a decision. I'm sticking through this. I'm going to do this. We are going to finish this together or alone. The job's getting done. That's commitment. That's long-suffering. And when you have committed with your mind to see it through, your heart has to follow. It has nowhere else to go. Too many Christians let their mind follow their heart. Why? Because the world tells us to. What do they know? How's that working out for them? Let's show them the opposite. The heart following the mind. The mind of Christ. When our heart follows our mind and we stay committed, it doesn't mean your life is easy. It just means that you won't give up. With all your mind, be blameless. Number two, with all your heart, be blameless. So there is the heart, and obviously we need to be blameless in our heart. And I see beginning now in the middle of verse 6, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. This first one. Letter A, Christ was kind to all who sought him. And you know what? Even those who rejected him. Whoa, whoa, Pastor Russ. Christ was not kind to the Pharisees. You know, I do see that. I do see where Christ seemed to call people out when they were uh, sticking their nose in Christ's business. But more importantly, when they were trying to belittle the deity of Christ. When they were trying to make Christ look evil, not just bad, evil. They were trying to claim Christ was of the devil. Now, Christ is not going to say, oh, I know, you Pharisees, you know, we're still buddies, right? Everything's good. You called me the devil, but, you know, we're still friends. You know, kindness does not mean you're a pushover. Do not compare Christ being strong on truth to his kindness to the masses. Because if your definition of kindness is you never stand on truth, then you're going to get walked all over by some very unkind people. Kindness does not mean you get to be shoved to the ground and kicked and beat on. Kindness means you treat people with the general respect for their humanity, but when truth comes up, you say what has to be said for the sake of truth. Because without truth, people will believe lies, and when people believe lies, they go to hell, and is that being kind to them? In the end, Saying the hard thing is the kindest thing you could do for them. In the end, calling out an abuser is the kindest thing you can do. Because when you let an abuser abuse you, when you enable the abuser, you're not being kind to them. You are letting them self-destruct and using you as the punching bag along the way. That's not being kind. Being kind is standing up and saying, you're a liar. Being kind is standing up and saying, you've got problems. And you may think I'm one of them, 
but you're the biggest problem. Calling them out, that is the kind thing. They won't like it. They won't see it as kindness, but how can you expect them to? They're deceived. You cannot interpret kindness by what other people feel, or you're only going to tell them what feels good, and that includes lies, and lies are never kind. Christ called out the Pharisees, most definitely. You know what he didn't do? He didn't beat them up. He didn't stone them. He didn't have them killed. He was kind in calling out their deception, not only kind to them with the hope that they someday also will see the truth, as some did, by the way. We're told in the book of Acts that there were Pharisees who got saved, so it worked for some of them. In his kindness, he called them out and was stern about it. But it got their attention, and some of them got saved. That's kind. But he was also kind to the masses, to the disciples who were listening. And he could not be kind to them and let the Pharisees say what they said and, not, and, not, and get away with it. So Christ was kind. Even when he called people out, he was kind by what he didn't do, <laughs> things he didn't say. Yes, he called out lies, he spoke truth, and he was stern about it, but even then kind about it. I look at the end of his life as he's being killed, suffering, beaten, whipped, crown of thorns. And we're told that he was reviled but did not return. He did not speak back curses. He did not swear at them. Mostly just silence. And when he did speak, he spoke with purpose. Christ was kind. So why is it we as Christians can't be kind? Don't tell me you're Christ-like if you're unkind. You're lying. You're lying to me and you're lying to yourself. And you know who sees that? The world. The world sees it. They know you're a liar even when you, know you're, even when you don't know you are. And the world doesn't want what you have. Again, I am not saying to enable the world in their lies. I am not saying to agree with their lies. I am not saying to pat them on the back and say, keep self-destructing, keep making bad choices, everything's going to be okay. That's a lie. Lying is not kind. But here's what I say very often. I can love someone and disagree with them. And that's not just something I say. I can literally... Show someone love and completely disagree with their life choices. I could totally do that. That does not bother me. Someone can live a lifestyle contrary to what I believe is scriptural. Someone could be self-destructing. Someone could be an abuser. Now, I'll call them out on it when I have the opportunity or the place to do so, but I can still be kind to them, and I will be kind to them because Christ is kind. And if you want to be Christ-like, then be kind but that's a choice that you must make, yes, of the mind, but displayed through the heart. It is something that people have to see with your heart. It cannot be an academic, oh, sir, I'll give this to you like a little robot. I'm going to help you. I'm going to hand this to you. I'm going to be there for you. they got to see your heart wants to. they got to see the kindness not from here. This is where the commitment comes from. This is where the kindness comes from. So as I was saying earlier, you make a commitment, you do it, your heart follows and brings the kindness with it once you've committed Letter B, the best prescription for a deceived heart is an omniscient God. In verse 6, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> a lot of people struggle with their hearts. They struggle with the choices of the heart, the emotions of the heart. They struggle with the direction their heart takes them, and they, oh, 
but it feels so good, so why shouldn't I do it? Why shouldn't I go there? Why can't I follow my heart? Why can't I follow my dreams? Like, why would God place this in my heart if it was wrong? You know what the Bible does tell us? It warns us in the Old Testament that the the heart is deceitful. It's wicked. We're told that the heart is impure. Why would you follow a liar? Only fools and liars follow liars. Well, if your heart is a liar, you're either a liar or a fool for following it. I think a lot of people have been lied to and are foolish in their acceptance of deception. And they think their heart has all the answers. Yeah, all the wrong ones. The greatest medicine, the greatest prescription you can give your heart is Christ, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and says, I've got a plan, I know the future, let me get you there. You know what the Bible tells us? That we're supposed to commit our thoughts unto the Lord, and then God is going to pave the way for us, you might say. We're told that God will give us the desires of our hearts when we, when we focus on him. That doesn't mean he'll give you whatever your heart desires. He, it means he'll place in your heart the desires he wants to be there. When you focus on God, God will replace your wicked desires with godly desires when you focus on him. And then your heart has been cleansed like your mind was cleansed. Your mind was cleansed with truth, with knowledge, Your heart is cleansed with the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction. And when the Holy Spirit cleanses your heart, corrects your heart, your heart now can guide you in the right direction towards God because you've given your heart to God. You say, Pastor Russ, how do I know if I can trust my heart? How do I know if my heart is leading me to God? Well, there's some practical ways. Look at the direction you're going, then look at Scripture. Is your life matching Scripture? If it's not, then your heart's taking you the wrong direction, and that's not God. Okay, second thing you can ask is this. As you follow your heart, are you getting more or less connected to God? Less connected, your heart's lying to you. It's not God. But there's something else. As your heart is leading you, Ask yourself this one question. Have I ever given my heart to God? I do not mean, did you get saved? (laughs) I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I gave my heart to God. Amen. I'm done. That's not what I'm saying. Did you say at some point with purpose, sincerely, God, my heart truly is yours. Everything I love in my heart is yours. Everything I want in my heart is yours. Every place I want to go, everything I want to do, it's yours. Take it, throw it away, give it back to me better, leave it there. It's yours. Do with it as you wish. If you haven't done that, your heart's direction should be highly suspect. If you never gave your heart to God, again, not through salvation. Obviously, salvation's required to do that. You can't give your heart to God if you're not saved. But after salvation, if you haven't honestly, sincerely, God, anything you want, take it. Keep it. Give it back. Give it to someone else. I mean, you can't probably say, I don't care, because you will care. But that's your prerogative. Once you've done that. 
once you've committed fully everything you are, everything you've got is God's, then you can. You can match and say, all right, now that I'm following my heart, I've done that commitment, I'm following my heart, is it taking me to the Bible? Check, good. Am I connecting closer to God? Check, good. You know what? I'm probably in a pretty safe place now. I could probably determine pretty well my heart's not deceiving me because I've given it to God. He's holding it in his hands. By the Holy Ghost, we're told in 2 Corinthians, by the Holy Ghost, I'm blameless. The Holy Ghost is directing me and using my heart to do so. Letter C. Conditional love is not biblical love. End of verse 6, we read, by love unfeigned. Unfeigned. Doesn't give up. Unfeigned uh, continues on. Unfeigned doesn't faint, doesn't fall, doesn't falter. Keeps going and going and going. Very similar to long-suffering, right? But this is kind of the heart side. The, the head side was the, I know it's going to hurt. I know I'm going to suffer. I'm going to do it anyways. Yesterday, my daughter Chloe, she's four years old. She's been wanting to get her ears pierced for some time, but she knew it was going to hurt. Why? Because her older sisters got it, and they told her. And her, one of her younger sisters, Sydney, didn't get it and has told her it's going to hurt more, which she wouldn't know, but only by guesstimation. So Chloe, Chloe knew that she wanted her ears pierced. She's been talking about it for some time. Can I get my ears pierced? Can I get my ears pierced? It's going to hurt. I know that. Little four-year-old girl. So she went, we went to the mall yesterday, and my wife, you know, she knew she was ready, brought her to, what was it Claire's, honey? Went to Claire's, brought her into Claire's, and sat her on there. Chloe knew. She knew it was going to hurt. So she steals herself. I actually wasn't there, but I was told about it. You know, she's ready for this. She readies her mind. They do the little thing, and I guess she kind of did this. No crying, no screaming, and they were amazed. The people there, I was told, were like, this four-year-old girl is like, can't get better than, like, grown men and women, you know, coming in here. Why? Chloe was fully prepared for the pain. She knew. She was ready because she had been told by everyone. And I think, Chloe, you know, she's only four. It's hard to really talk to her. But from what I can gather, like, she thought it was going to hurt worse than it actually did. So she was so ready for such extreme pain that it was just that little pinch. She's like, that's nothing compared to what I was ready for. <laughs> like, bring it on. So that's the long-suffering, right? That was not a heart thing for Chloe. That was a head thing. Chloe at four had processed that information, and at four years old had said, I want this so bad, bring the pain on. I want earrings. You just compliment her today. I'm telling you this. I want you to compliment my daughter on her earrings, okay? Every one of you. <laughs> She's so excited this morning. Come up and say, Daddy, like, I love my diamond earrings. She's wearing this. They're not real diamonds. Don't worry. We're not that rich. <laughs> so she loves her earrings, but in her head, she was ready for it. That's a head thing. And she suffered through that pain because of what she wanted. The heart thing is the love unfeigned, meaning there is a commitment. I'm going to make it, but then the heart's going to follow, and the heart's not going to give up because the head decided we're moving forward whether you like it or not. Pain or no pain, we're going forward. So the heart says, fine, then I'll love along the way. Fine, I'll be kind along the way. Dragging the heart, kicking and screaming. But eventually the heart gets in line and starts doing what it needs to be done the right way. Love unfeigned, unconditional love. Christians, why? Why do you only love those who deserve to be loved? Your, your list must be very short. And I don't imagine you're on it. I can't imagine who would be on that list. Certainly not me. Why would you ever use the phrase deserve and love together? <laughs> it doesn't go together. No one deserves love. Well, little babies, 
They deserve love, and what have they done to deserve it? They're cute. Is that all that it takes to deserve love? They're cute. They're helpless. Okay, so helplessness deserves love, because I, I know a lot of adults that are helpless. Do they deserve your love? Well, they, you know, eh. Okay, folks, babies are cute and helpless. That's really all they got going for them. I get it. They're your child, and so you're connected. I get it, but, uh, I mean, come on. Be honest with yourself. The baby hasn't done anything to deserve your love. You chose to love it, not because the baby deserves it. It was a choice you made in your head, and your heart followed. Make that same choice for everyone else in your life. (laughs) I'm going to choose to love them, and my heart is going to follow whether it likes it or not. I'm going to love that person. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Eventually, you won't have to force yourself. It will come naturally. And in point number three, blameless with all your soul. Let's move on now to verse 7. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Letter A. A lost soul only needs, to find, only needs truth to find its way. A lost soul, whether someone who's unsaved and needs to be saved, all they need is truth. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You want the life? You want to be saved? Then I am the truth to get you there. And those who are saved, believers who have found that they are lost, not unsaved. Because once you're saved, you're saved. God doesn't say, here's salvation, give it back. Here's salvation, give it back. Here's salvation, give it back. God says, here's salvation, I've got you, I'm not letting go. That's what he says. Once you're saved, you're saved. But you can be lost emotionally. You can be lost spiritually. The prodigal son who walked away from the father, he is still the son, still belongs to the dad. When he returns, the dad is there. But he's lost Not eternally lost, lost for a time in his life. If you're lost, you know what can get you back to where you need to go? The truth. Verse 7, by the word of truth, with all your soul be blameless. Know truth, follow truth, offer truth, live truth, believe truth. It is truth that leads the lost to the light. And truth cannot be surface for the Christian. Truth cannot be one out of seven days for the Christian. Truth cannot be a head knowledge. Truth is a soul knowledge. It obviously begins here. You've got to know it. But then you've got to embrace it. It is infused with you. Let me tell you. A truth now. Young children. For many young children, the truth is not infused. How could it? Their brain. I mean, I'm talking deep truths. Obviously, I can say young children can be saved. I get that. But deep truths about who they are, who God is, the church, the world. A lot of these truths are not infused to their soul. It's a head knowledge for them. You know how I know that? Because when they're 18, they drop it all and walk away. That's how I know that. How did that happen? How did it happen where children from young, from 8 to 18, never infused the truth into their soul? It was never something they truly embraced for themselves. It was only something they heard and listened to and thought they believed, but it only remained here. How did that happen? Because adults never encourage them to believe it for themselves. 
Adults never let them ask the hard questions. Adults, adults never gave them the opportunity for critical questions, critical thinking, which results in the infusing of truth into the soul. You cannot separate my soul from the truth of God's word. It's not going to happen. You can scream at me all day long about what you believe about uh, 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 morality and gender. You can scream at me all day long about what you believe about evolution. You can say whatever you want about these things. It's not going to change anything for me. It's infused in my soul. To eliminate that truth would be to take my soul. It's not a change of mind for me. It's a, it's a change of soul, which I'm not going to do. So this is very, very important, Christian. On the flip side. Some children have infused that truth into their soul. I've seen it. They've embraced it wholeheartedly, become one with that truth, only to find out at 18 it was a lie. They weren't told truth. (laughs) Some churches would say, here's a truth. Women should only wear skirts and dresses. Men should never have a beard. Clean-shaven men and dress-wearing women, that is a truth you must infuse in your soul. And did I get my point across? I say it like that because I'm going to tell you, I've been, I've been to these teen youth conferences. These leaders, these youth preachers are traveling a thousand miles giving up a week of their time. Churches are paying thousands of dollars to bring this person in. And I got to ask myself, what I'm doing, when I ha- and I have been the speaker at conferences like that in camps, I ask myself, all right, so much time and prayer and money invested. What is the truth that I want these teens to infuse into their soul? It's not going to be what they wear. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? And if it was, I certainly wouldn't say, if you wear pants, you're of the devil. And yet I've been to these where that is exactly what is said. There are Christians who misspeak and they take their thoughts, claim it as truth, and infuse it, mold it, meld it, weld it into the soul of children. And that child gets 18 and says, what? You all lied to me. And here's exactly what happens. I said, you take the truth from me, you take my soul. That's what happens to these kids. When you do weld it into their soul, and they realize it was a lie, and they snatch it out, part of their soul goes with them. It's gone. You look in their eyes, something's missing. The joy, the happiness, what they believe, the excitement, it's gone. It's deadness in their eyes. Because they welded lies to their soul rather than truth. Now, of course, the world does that quite often with children. The world does not give children the opportunity to recognize that danger. And they they go their whole life with those lies welded into their soul, never really understanding what they've done. The church does it too. The world, though, calls it out. And so when a child grows up at 18, the world says, oh, that was lies, that was lies, that was lies. The kid says, seriously? And you pull the, tr- the lies from you pull the soul from them, and they're not the same person. So it's, it's a lose-lose. <laughs> you don't let the child learn truth. 
You don't help the child weld it to their souls. They drop it and walk away from it at 18. You, you weld the wrong things, lies and deception. It will be torn from them and their soul with it. Parents, teachers, Christian, make sure that you are giving truth to people, especially those who embrace it and bring it into their soul because you will do more damage than you could ever possibly know if what you weld and help them weld into their soul is in any way a lie. That's responsibility I don't want. We're almost done. Let her see. Those who follow truth are offered protection from those who attack it. I had stated before that when you choose a side, you've accepted an enemy. Enemy, I said that last week. But God says, I'm not going to leave you defenseless. In verse 7, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left, God wants to give you defense. Defense against the spiritual, emotional, physical attacks of those who hate him. God will not leave you defenseless. You say, Pastor Russ, I feel like it. Could it be you took the armor off? Is that God's fault you took it off? God gave you the armor. You said, no, thank you. And now you feel like you're defenseless. That's your fault. Put it back on. Put on the armor of righteousness. Ephesians chapter 6, do a study on it. Breastplate of righteousness. Helmet of salvation. Gird your loins with the belt of truth. Put on your feet the shoes the preparation of the gospel of peace. God has given you, Christian, everything you need that once you've welded that truth to your soul and it becomes a part of you, to move forward and get to the end successfully. He's given you the defense you need to get there. Stop taking it off. Ah. You know, there's truth. I don't want to follow the, the truth, the belt of truth. Take that off. Righteousness, you know, I mean, morality is so overrated. Let's take off that breastplate. Yeah, I am saved. I don't need to think about heaven. I don't need to think about the gospel of peace. I don't need to think about the hope I have in Christ. I'll take that helmet off. You know, I mean, living a, a, a witness for people to see, you know, it just offends people. I'll take off the shoes. Man, God, why is it so painful in this life? Why do I get, you know, arrows stuck in me? And, and why are people slicing me up? And why am I getting so destroyed? Because there's pieces of armor that you took off along the way because you thought you knew better than God. You don't know better than God. God gave you those pieces for a reason. Put them back on. And the arrows will no longer pierce. And the sword will no longer slice. No, people will try. They just won't succeed. And no one's taking that truth from your soul. The truth, that's real truth. Let's pray.